listening to KYRS, Medical Expo Can, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Eric, well, first of all, this is Art Hour, and I'm one of your hosts, Mike Molson. And I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Eric, this might be, this is a big one. It's a big one. <laughs> Our guest today is Spokane's own Jess Walter, uh, New York Times bestseller author, six novels or so. Um, but has a new one coming out that we're excited to hear about today. And I think just today's interview, let's uh, do something that <laughs> Jess is not used to. <laughs> let's go that route. Anyway, Jess, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for letting us be in your backyard, too. So you're going to hear Beautiful. dogs barking, and we heard some chickens earlier. You might hear a generator fire up. You might hear some planes overhead. You will definitely hear so. some planes over. You might hear some clinking. <laughs> clinking, yes. so You might hear a cocktail clinking. Yeah. So, yeah, you Please can try. Triang- try this at home. <laughs> you can triangulate our location. Yeah. Uh, so how are you feeling with the novel? about? We're doing this on Thursday, October 1st. Yeah. Your novel comes out on the 5th? No, it comes out the 27th. So oh, I've oh. got. Oh. almost four weeks but this is when everything sort of picks up i've got uh interviews uh and podcasts and um things every day for the next uh from now until thanksgiving basically and three four some days is that fun you know uh it's it's funny every author has this different balance between introvert and extrovert and mine tips toward introvert when i'm writing and tip really tips toward extrovert when i'm done i can't wait to get out and talk about it i've been working on this for four five six sometimes 15 years and i really want to get out and talk (laughs) about it and i'm proud of it and i'm excited about it and it's like you know when you're when you've read a book and someone else hasn't um and you want to tell them about it it's sort of like that you know is this the longest you've worked on a novel no 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 beautiful ruins was 15 years off and on and i um and that was the last novel which came out in 2012 so this is the longest gap between novels um so it's been eight years, but I've, I've worked on this off and on. I had this idea um, about writing about early 20th century Spokane probably 10, 12 years ago and started saving up research and putting things aside. But I've really been working hard on it for about the last five. Did you get the idea? I mean, I was thinking of reading Tim Egan's uh, Breaking Blue. Mm. Did you? What, such a great book. Is there yeah. a relationship at all between this no, one and that one? You know, um, no, th- this takes place earlier than that book. Um, I've, I think that's a terrific book book as so many of Tim's are. Tim is actually going to be doing one of my first events with me. We're going to be talking at, at, um, quote marks, uh, um, Elliott Bay in Seattle. Um, but no, it was, um, it was really the free speech riots of 1909. I, I've just always been fascinated by that. I grew up in a labor family. My dad was a union president. And the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the mm-hmm. World, the first union to allow women, to allow people of color, to allow Native Americans, um, you know, and, and it was it was one of those moments when you think, why can't the world be like that? You know, and we grow up and we think, well, that doesn't work, you know, and the youthful idealism of that moment. And then the youthful idealism of Spokane, this is, we're sitting outside my 1906, um, 1907 Spokane house. And I've lived in three straight houses built in either 1906 or 1907. And so much of the architecture, so much of the city 
comes from that moment in time. Um, and as I researched it and saw this city that was doubling in size every six years, um, you know, the amazing growth that was happening, but also the degradation of the environment, the, the um, uh, you know, the, the pushing of the tribe out. You know, we live in a city named for the people we drove from it, mm-hmm. you know, the, the great horrible irony of these things. It struck me as this as almost the origin story of Spokane arriving in that moment. And then the deeper I got into it, you know, writing about civil unrest and and income inequality in 1909 was the closest way to write about the present moment without actually writing about the present moment. And that was going to be my next question. It sounded like it was going to be your question too. I mean, uh, 1909, and I'm thinking... Um, getting towards the Gilded Age, mm-hmm. um, the whole social exactly. income, wealth mm-hmm. distribution, um, women's rights, um, you know, the, the racial thing. I mean, it's we could be talking about right now. And the, and the deeper I got into the novel, the more I felt that. I thought, you know, and, and it was really income inequality that drew me in. I was, I am so working class to my bones. I'm a first generation college graduate and a um you know, and my dad worked at Kaiser and, and, you know, I'm, that's who I come from. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, writing about that moment, both of my grandfathers were itinerant workers, were hobos who rode the rails mm. looking for work. And so to write, so that was who I decided to write about, two hobos in 1909. <laughs> um, and, I, and they're Irish. They're from Montana, Ryan and Gregory Dolan, and they go by the names Rye and Gig. And I loved that. It was a Rye um, way to to wryly talk about the gig economy you know? <laughs> um, and uh, and so to sort of make those really subtle connections to the present moment um, and then have the you know as I was working on the novel and writing about you know riots in downtown Spokane over free speech in which 500 people were arrested um, a school was closed and turned into a jail to jail all the people no more than three people could gather on the street and the police and the Pinkertons and the the goons would come in and just beat these protesters and to have that intersect with the Black Lives Matters protests. And they're very different. I mean, the um, you can't compare anything to the history of, of uh, racism in America. It just is. It's just, mm-hmm. but but at the same time, writing about this um, civil unrest and uh, and the ways in which, you know, th- those things come into play, it, it really did feel, um, you know, like I was writing about the present moment. So you're, you're a very socially conscious person, just from from what I know and listening to you talk. Was that in the back of your mind when you started this, or was it more about your family history and kind of going back to those times? Honestly, the first thing I I'm <laughs> thinking about when I'm writing a novel is narrative, is the story, is the characters. You know, I just get lost in the book. I think if those things seep in, it's because that's what I believe. You know, I um, I didn't grow up going to a church. I grew up, my sense of fairness came from my dad telling me about unions. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember a kid in my neighborhood using the N-word when I was eight or nine, and my dad bursting out the front door and saying, we don't talk like that, you know. And that came not from um, a moral upbringing, but from a sense that, that you bring everybody up. And that's what my dad believed a labor union did. And, mm-hmm. and that, you know, to watch the working class separated from um, 
from their own voting interests in the last 30 years has kind of been heartbreaking. I remember when uh, when Ronald Reagan broke the uh, um, the uh, air traffic, air traffic controllers yeah. union and my dad saying this is the beginning of the end and not knowing how right he was, you know, that yeah. um, that, you know, that this and, and not to and not to say that there weren't you know, um, uh, transgressions and, and, uh, corruptions in unions. Mm-hmm. Of course right. there were, um, you can't create anything, uh, human without that seeping in. But, um, you know, it, so, so I, I think, I think those, the, those ideas of fairness and of, you know, of, um, uh, of the egalitarian belief that in America we take care of one another. Um, you know, I, th- I think that would seep into anything I write. M- my book of short stories, We Live in Water, um, which is, you know, about those people we drive past on the street, um, The Financial Lives of the Poets, which is about the last economic crisis. I think I'm drawn to those things. Um, and then, But then when I'm writing, it's really the narrative, you know. And with this one, I really wanted to tell a big, rollicking 1909 <laughs> vaudeville actress, um, Pinkerton detective, almost Western. Um, but I wanted to do it with that social heart. Well, speaking of financial lives of the poets, I was uh, emailing or I was texting Dave Jackson and I wanted uh, to know if he had any questions for you. And he wanted to know <laughs> if <Dave Jackson. laughs> uh, he wanted to know to what extent the financial lives of the poets was autobiographical. It is about Dave Jackson. That's exactly <laughs> right. Um, no, not biographical. Oh, autobiographical. Oh, oh, I misunderstood the question. Um, most of my books are about Dave Jackson. <laughs> Um, um, very much less than people would think. Oh, okay. The um, uh, I sometimes tell people that I I uh, I put the hero of that novel, Matt Pryor, in my house, but that was about it. Oh, okay. Um, uh, he lives very much in a neighborhood like I do, but um, it, it, I I think I connect with almost all of my characters at some level. Um, but I think people see the exterior uh, characters, the ones that resemble me in an exterior way, and think those, that must be closer to the truth. But I feel like I have almost as much in common with Rye Dolan, the hobo in this novel, or Pasquale Tursi, the Italian innkeeper, as I do that character. Uh, I did, though, say, what if instead of the generally good decisions I make every day, I just made every bad decision? And that was a fun novel to write for that reason. Because like Bizarro World from Right. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like instead of telling the kids thanks for the offer of uh, of a joint outside of Seven Eleven, what if I said sure? <laughs> you know, no thanks, I can't. No, what if I said sure? What if I said I should go with these kids somewhere? You know, what if I? And so it was, you know, it it was sort of instead of being autobiographical, it's almost reverse autobiographical, taking someone who looks like me externally and then having him make the opposite decisions I usually make. Okay, so the answer is it's about Dave Jackson. <laughs> it's about yeah. Dave okay, Jackson. Okay. There you go. Uh, yeah. So is this the most research you've ever done for a novel? Yeah, it probably is. And then did, being a former journalist, did you have a hard time? I mean, because when you have all that research, you said you got to find the narrative, yeah. and often those things are at odds with each other. Did you have a hard time with that? Uh, yes. I mean, I... It's funny because you always have a hard time with everything. It's, um, <laughs> you know, there. Every time you think, "Oh, this is my," you know, th- this is my um, ninth book, my seventh novel, and you keep thinking, "Oh, you know, this one is 
you know, it'll be easier. I'll be better at it. But each one is the first time you've ever written that novel. So you're writing a first novel every time. Everyone has, you know, completely different demands. And this one was so research heavy. I embedded myself in the Spokane library over newspaper microfilm and microfiche and read so many books and academic papers and, um, and, you know, and just even reading like a book of wobbly lyrics of um, the Wobblies, the IWW, the, the old union, just reading a book of their old songs, you know, you just immerse yourself. And, and, and because I wanted to mirror the real story, um, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, uh, uh, early labor activist, uh, is a character in the book, the police chief of Spokane, John Sullivan, is a character in the book. The book begins with the murder of a police officer, Arthur Waterbury, um, who was actually killed um, five days before the the uh, free speech riots here. And so the the high the there are almost tent poles of the real story that I tried to build it around. When you do that, um, you want to honor that real story, but then you do have to let the narrative flow. And so at some point, I was joking to Anne, I had to fire the research department and just go with the narrative right. department. Right, absolutely. Um, but if you read the novel, you you also, I think, you know, will will get a at least a, a fiction writer's version of what these free speech riots were about. Uh, and I also wrote the longest acknowledgments and afterward I've ever written to kind of tell people, here are some books you can read about the real events because I think they're that important. What, what did you, um, was there any big surprises or ahas, you know, doing all that research and reading these stories um, that you go, man, I have no idea and, and somewhat have a better understanding of now because of the research I did then. Yeah, I mean, every step of the way, the whole thing are these aha moments. Everything from environmentalism, watching the way we treated the river. You know, you're looking at an, at old 1909 pictures when because of all so the river has just always been a sewer you know i mean as soon as as soon as um as white settlers came to spokane that's what they used it for they threw their garbage in it threw their sewage in it well as spokane is doubling in size and growing so fast everyone's just taking their garbage down to the river to let the river haul it off because who cares where it goes uh, but as the river starts to fall and your garbage is on the banks it builds up and so um, here's the solution. The city put garbage hatches in the bridges. So you're looking at 1909 and there's a swinging hatch um, uh, <laughs> trap door for you to dump your refuse in so that it goes straight into the river, not the banks, because it was stinks so badly <laughs> oh, otherwise. My goodness. Um, now, um, so let's say you're building a house. You have all the leftover lumber ends and everything. You just, you know, take your wagon or your truck, you dump it in the river. Well, then they start having these big mounds in the center of the river, these mounds of garbage. Um, and when they would, and then when the flow would get big in the spring, of mm -hmm. course, it would take it downstream. But when they got to the end of the falls, all this stuff would just build up down in Peaceful Valley. So they would dynamite it to blow it up, to send it downstream. Um, and just imagining like people gathering on the banks, watching them dynamite, uh, and often a body or two would float up, you know, because, you know, of a missing person or something. So the police would be there to solve a murder or two, you know, and just the, the, you know, the, the ways in which, um, you know, the river was degraded and, you know, to see those kinds of things and to see that we're still cleaning it up. We're still working with the river keeper to try to, you know, clean up, um, 
centuries of just dumping, you know, um, when they when they blew up Nat Park down below here, they just pushed it in the river. You can still see the footings. You can still see the concrete, you know, and we we mistreated this river so much. So things like that, things like, um, uh, you know, the... Um, you know, the, just the way in which Spokane's history formed the place we live now, from the parks to the architecture, you know, the million dollars that um, was paid to the Olmsted brothers to put in parks, and how how many civic leaders were against that. They said, you know, are you going to pay us to, to put gri- grass where our grass is? <laughs> you know? um, uh, but but we still live with the benefits of that great decision, and then we also live with the the, the mistakes, you know, the the rapacious building and growth that that um, you know that we are still cleaning up from, like the river, you know. So so yeah, it's it was interesting to be writing this novel, um, but then to be reading these newspapers and see, you know, um, to see the way the some of those things came about that that still exist in the city we're in. Man. You said earlier that uh, every book is kind of a first novel. And I we interviewed Sean Vestal a few weeks back. And one of the questions that I asked him that I, I'm curious about for you, when you, so you were a journalist first. Mm-hmm. You wrote for The Spokesman. I did, yeah. um, Your first book was nonfiction about Ruby Ridge. That's right, yeah. Were you always with an eye toward writing fiction or was that, I mean, would you consider yourself a person who always wanted to write fiction and wrote journalism to pay the bills or was this something that um, evolved? I, al- I did always want to be a novelist. When I was a kid, I, when I was in middle school, I would go to the library and look to see where my books would be filed. Um, and <laughs> I would imagine them sliding oh, wow. in right after Kurt Vonnegut and, you know, or after Hugh Wal- Walpole if the library was bigger. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I did always want to be a novelist. Um, I, I also also... I also always wanted to be an NBA basketball player. And those two things did not seem like... Um, different dreams. They both seemed so unlikely. Again, first-generation college student, I didn't, we didn't have a ton of books in the house. My parents always pushed education. My mom read to us, but I did not come from a literary family. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how you got there. And so it was really more of a daydream than a career plan. Journalism was something that was attainable. It was much more, it was closer to my blue-collar roots. And then I became a dad at 19. Um, And so especially then, you're not just going to sit out and grow your goatee and write poetry. (laughs) And so journalism was this great path for me. Um, I always still intended to go to the University of Iowa and get my MFA, um, but life gets in the way and I really ended up liking the path I took. I always joke that I took the service entrance into literature <laughs> and it fit me better. Speak- that oh, seems really uh, that's fairly unusual for somebody to know that early you're going to be a, a novelist. I yeah. mean before middle school around there. I mean did you? Were you always a voracious reader? Did I mean, it was, you, was the East party? Valley education system. Well, honestly. I was there, <laughs> just as you know. It was not the East Valley education <laughs> no. system. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 when I was five, I got a stick in my left eye, so I have no vision in that eye, and I had to sit out of school to have surgeries and couldn't play outside for a while, and you just develop a love for books. You oh, know, yeah. I was just curled up with books. I, I can remember my aunts and my mom's friends pulling me on their laps and reading to me. And I really liked that. And, and, um, I was funny and, uh, 
tiny and have wear black rim glasses with an eye patch and tape on the corner. And, you know, it's not, you know, I might have chosen male model or a <laughs> NFL tight end if I had had different attributes. But, um, yeah, I, I, those were the things I like to do. When I wrote in school, the teacher said, you write well. So is I do joke about... Um, about my high school sometimes that it was a bong and nunchuck factory. <laughs> but I also had amazing teachers. Yeah, who, there was some. I yeah, Joan Clark yeah. grabbed me and said, you're a good writer. And I was the newspaper editor. And, um, you know, I had... So even, even in a school that at the time, you know... Um, only a small percentage of kids were going to go on to college. Um, we were going to have more pregnancies than we were college kids. Um, the Even in that school, there are teachers who plant these seeds, you know, and maybe those seeds are even more important than they are at prep schools or at, you know, places because the, all the other things are stacked against you. But I, and so I knew that I was good at this thing. Um, and then there were a few writers that I just thought, oh, I want to do that. I want to, I want to be as funny and humane as Kurt Vonnegut. I want to craft sentences that can cut diamonds like Joan Didion. I want to hang out with Jack Kerouac and the beats, you know, you, Mm -hmm. it's aspirational. And so it was, it was all aspirational for me and, um, I'll be damned. I'm still waiting for the call up for the NBA, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, the, that, the first daydream kind of worked. Wow. Sure. You're listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. Hang out with me, Jukebox Jenny, on Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. to hear America's very own music, the blues. Let me help you shake the trouble out with a mix of funk, R&B, and blues from Delta to Chicago. You'll hear... Don't forget to shake your rump, too. It's a cocktail that will soothe the soul. Working Woman's Blues, Sunday nights, 6 to 8 p.m., right here on KYRS. Invited to cruise Americana Avenue with me, Jim Tate, in your car or at the office, each Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m. You'll hear the best and progressive American roots music in a multitude of styles. It's Americana Avenue on your radio station, KYRS. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. That's all one word Give KYRS to 44321. Art Hour receives support from Saga, the Spokane Arts Grant Award. 
information online at spokanearts.org. Now, journalism, though, uh, at, at a young age yeah. where you were, I think w it was like a musician yeah. having to do these gigs before he actually goes and creates his own music is a great way to develop your writing chops. Yeah. So, I mean, that had, for that alone, probably no, that, was worth it. That's a great way to put it. And I like to think of myself as like getting a job in a piano bar, you know, <laughs> and they would put the requests in <laughs> yeah. and I'd take them out. And, <laughs> and no one has tuned this piano in years and I've got to play it right then. But that's kind of what journalism is. And you you lose your fear of, of performance, of, of writing. You know, um, a, a lot of fiction writers get sort of frozen but i th and and you know you publish every day as a newspaper reporter you live with your mistakes and you do your best and i th and i liked that i loved i'm a work a day guy i st i'm a farmer i wake up at five in the morning and go out to plow the fields and just happens to be you know uh, at a keyboard but i liked and so i liked that about journalism but i think the thing that benefited me the most as a writer was how outward looking journalism is i was not writing poems about my feelings mm -hmm. <laughs> um i was writing about systems and people and interviewing people and and developing a stronger sense of empathy because mm -hmm. of the stories that i covered and uh, i still wish journalism was a path to being a novelist the way it, it was for me for more people but you know newspapers are it's a tough place to go to work right now mm -hmm. it's not it isn't the career path that it once was but yeah. it trained me to be a novelist probably better than that Iowa MFA would have if I had mustered the chance to go. The there. Ruby Ridge um, reporting, mm -hmm. which was uh, maybe kind of a breakthrough, but that was kind of like a to me a combination of reporting but also novel writing. I mean, yeah. did you f have to keep yourself from? Uh, I guess fictionalizing. No. I mean, in terms of uh, description. I mean, even and though I that. wanted to be a fiction writer, I, I loved those two things, but I always kept them very serious, very separate. I did want to um, write in. I wanted to write um, scenes and write, you know, in a way that that brought it to life um, the way fiction can. Um, but I I also believe so strongly in the journalist's job as um, an objective arbiter of you know, as close as we can get to truth, or at least people's versions of truth. That, mm -hmm. um, but it, but it did make this, in that book. Uh, I, Ruby Ridge was in 1992, and I, it came out. The book came out in '95, and I challenged myself to make the reporting so solid that I could write those kinds of scenes. So the thing I remember the most was I had the wiretaps of the of the ATF agent who was working with Randy Weaver and he's and they're in the car and I'm type and I'm listening and you know writing these this scene and and the doors open in the car and they step out and I'm like stepped out into into what was the weather like well this in 1993 when I was writing this book you couldn't just google <laughs> it so I drove to Sandpoint went to the library um, got the newspapers from that day, saw that it was a sunny day, drove back and were typed sunny day. <laughs> you know, oh, they man. stepped out into a sunny day. <laughs> um, and the level of reporting it took to make it read novelistically um, is probably one of the things I'm proudest of in that book. Well, before I ever met you, I, uh, I, I um, buttonholed you at the, at, uh, the warehouse uh, 
Oh, after a basketball game? After a basketball game, and I said- Was I hanging from the rim? uh, You were. You were. You would just hit your forehead (laughs) on the rim. That's right. A little ridge And and, uh, I I had told you how much I admired that book. Oh, thank you. And you you had spoken to my journalism students when I taught journalism, and you had really inspired them. So that book made a big impression on me. Oh, that's great. And you've mentioned a couple of times the Iowa- MFA mm-hmm. Writers Workshop, and then you got to realize a dream yeah. not yeah. of attending it, but of teaching at it. Tell tell me how yeah. that went because I talked to you before you left, but I, I haven't really talked oh, to you about you? how it went. Oh. No, um, yeah. So yeah, uh, you know Vonnegut being one of my heroes taught there. He taught John Irving there and Marilyn Robinson, and the I mean it's it is hallowed ground for writers. And I went so far as when I was at the Spokesman Review to take the GRE and have my test score sent there, but I couldn't afford to go. I couldn't pull it pull the trigger so but i always dreamed of it and and we are driven as much by our insecurities as our ambitions and my insecurities have always been that i don't actually have the training to do this you know and i so i do it out of audacity and you know whatever other things but i um to be asked to teach there was this strange combination of um, pride and my insecurities. Like, I'm going to mm. teach a degree I don't have, you know? Should I go teach medical school after this? So, <laughs> please remove your... Sh- at the Holiday Inn? Yeah, no. right, right. Please remove your sharp, spiky things, <laughs> and we will be cutting into the patient. Um, I, uh, but, but I also know I've studied this in my... You know, I'm an autodidact. I've, I feel like I've taught myself as well as anyone could. So... Um, I went to Iowa and I and it was wonderful. And um, Anne flew me there and put me on a ten-speed bike and I um, went to class and I went and played basketball every day and um, and and it I, it was so enjoyable. The students were thrilling. I the Booker Prize long list came out and two of my thesis students were on it. Oh, I mean wow, that man. just tells you the level of writers Jeez. that you're working with there. And so. Um, um, but I, yeah, it was really enjoyable and it, I was terrified. I would get up to go to class and I would think these kids are brilliant kids. They're mostly in their twenties, thirties, forties from all over the world. Um, and to get into that program is so competitive. Many of them already had book deals. You know, one of, uh, one of my thesis students, I helped her adapt her, her best-selling novel into a screenplay, you know, so you're working at such a high level. But for me, it, one of the students toward the end of the year said, you're, you're just like a student here, aren't you? Because <laughs> um, I was, I would, you know, like I said, I would play basketball. I was the last teacher to leave the bar. I, you know, I was the only teacher that went to the parties that got invited to. And, and it was, I was a very well-behaved student. I was very intentional about, you know, keeping distance between myself and the grad students but it was yeah it was really wonderful and I would I went I took a class I took a Moby Dick um, seminar with a handful of grad students where we would just sit and slowly read Moby Dick I would go hear lectures and concerts and it was to be able to to be able to do that in your 50s um, to go back and and not not only you know have be in the atmosphere you wanted but to get to teach there was really thrilling and then i think out of sheer enthusiasm my uh, valuations were even good so <laughs> oh, wow. yeah. that's awesome yeah. it was fun it was really um i'm so glad i did it you know my novel was six months late because i did it but it was so worth it for me personally yeah. do you have any um aspirations down the road of doing a 
other short stints uh, uh, with that? Yeah, I, I, I love teaching. I love the charge it gives me. I also have the benefit of not having to do it year by year so that it's a drag, so that I have to deal with, you know, um, the politics behind it and all those things. So it's, I totally understand why I love it because I, uh, and I had taught before I taught in three or four other low residency MFA programs and had been a visiting lecturer and had filled in at Eastern one semester. So I, I, it, it wasn't my first time teaching, but that was so special, I think, because it, it connected with this part of this daydream I had. Um, but yeah, I would, I would love to teach at NYU or at um, Columbia. I think New York would be the next place I would go because I've always wanted to be a New York writer too. And, you know, just to do that for a semester would be amazing. I'm curious as to what kind of like feedback or, I mean, you're talking about brilliant students yeah. to get to that level. I mean, what is it that you offer? I mean, you have your own voice as a, as yeah. an author. So what they're getting is Jess Walters, but what, what is, what do you think that is? You know, um, as I, as I explained, I'm not a critic. I'm not, um, an academic. I'm, I approach this almost like a mechanic. Um, your car will run really well if you, after you take a class with me, Mm -hmm. I, um, I am a sentence guy. I'm a plot guy. I'm especially a story guy. And that's a really hard thing for people to understand. And in Masters of Fine Arts programs, there is a great deal of attention paid to the language and the beauty of a sentence. Um, one critic called it the cult of the sentence. Um, you know, it's the, it's the individual writing itself. And I think that there's a beauty and elegance in story, too. And there's in, in it's less so, but in some MFA programs, story was treated as this sort of brutish thing that, oh, we don't want to talk about plot, you know. And, um, and to me, there's an elegance to the story. Not thinking of it like what happens, but the shape, the shape of a story. When you, when you come over the hill on some great story and it starts that, that incredible push downward into the denouement of the story, it can be as thrilling as reading great poetry, as reading great language. Um, and, and the writing that stands out that lasts melds um, that sense of artistic storytelling with great language, great writing, great sentences. And, and I think, um, if anything, I, I offered them a way to see story. The, the seminar I taught, I taught a workshop, which is, you know, just working with students on their writing. And then I taught a seminar on the shape of stories and, um, and just visualizing these stories as shapes was, I think the thing that I provided that was helpful. I hope. And I was an amazing on the basketball court. Uh, of course. I was the first faculty member chosen. <laughs> yeah, the, o- the only one who played, but. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. But you brought the ball, too. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I, I'm still kind of fixated on the thing you said earlier where you said every novel is the first novel. Because I was mm-hmm. thinking about, uh, you know, I've read your work and I it, everything's a little different. You know, you've got. Yeah. The one that really stands out to me is the book you wrote with Christopher Darden, yeah. of course. Yeah, in uh, yeah. yeah, and I, I do want to come back to that maybe if we have time. But is there something that you're looking forward to trying to write that you haven't approached yet? I mean, it, I, every time I. It, every time I venture out, I sort of do something different. And it, in early in my career, this was not 
to my benefit. Like um, <laughs> they sort of want you to find right, your lane. Find the, yeah, right, yeah. right. And and so my first book is a successful nonfiction book. Oh, we want more of that. And then I write what's considered a crime novel, and it does really well. I'm like, oh, write more crime novels. And then I write literary crime fiction. They're like, don't be so literary. And then I write literary fiction. <laughs> um, and then you know, and so I I do then short stories and. Um, I sort of promised myself I would just write the next thing I wanted to read and that I would not early on it was hard to find readers and I was not that successful and almost as a way of self-protection you tell yourself that's a rigged system I'm just going to write for myself I'm going to write um for art or for the love of it and um and it serves you well enough that when you start having a little bit of success the easiest thing i suppose would have been to write um even more beautiful ruins you know um and instead i wrote a sort of hard-boiled uh, historical f- novel you know i i love going against my own best interests uh, as a novelist um but I, but i don't do it to be cantankerous i do it because that's what I want to write. So, yeah, I, um, uh, I the next book will be another book of short stories, which I love writing, and I've published quite a few since the last collection, and so I'll pull those together into a, a book, and then I'm working on another novel that I want to be... F- want it to be funny and light on its feet and sort of romantic um, with a little bit of suspense mixed in, I guess. So... Um, yeah, the I I'm very much challenged to do th- different things. I also have real drive to write another nonfiction book um, eventually. So maybe after the next novel. Well, you and in your uh, novel is being turned into a film, Beautiful Ruins. Maybe. Yeah. Well, it's it, the it has a name attached to it. The yes. director of Mulan, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, Nikki Caro. Yeah. So, to what extent are you involved in the screenplay aspect of that? Um, well, I should back up and say every book of mine but one has been optioned for a film so just because it's optioned they can attach directors they can put together cast and until you're in the theater with popcorn it's just um (laughs) you know a story and variety and a little bit of money so um so but beautiful ruins does seem closer um they but um, COVID has kind of put everything on hold, so I don't think they've even cast it yet, which is a pretty big step, obviously. Um, but the I I wrote a script originally with another director named Todd Field, um, sort of following his idea for the novel. In the bedroom, Todd Field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. one of my favorite movies. He's great. He's, oh, he's so terrific. good. But it's it really is threading a needle to get a film made. Mm. Every time they announce something like that, you have to know they're announcing six hundred. They're going to make two. So mm. everyone's wow. hearing, oh, they're making this, they're making right. that. Nobody's making anything. It's a system designed to sort of weed things out until everything comes together. But by that same token. You know, it it can take years, decades to make something. They keep sort of pressing on with it if it's something they love. This one has such good people attached. It's Steven Spielberg's production company, Amblin. Mm. It's Nikki Caro, the, um, who just finished the live-action Mulan. It's... Um, um, uh, Sam Mendes, who made 1917 and 1917 or 18. What is that? 17, mean? I think. An English yeah. patient, too. It, right? Yeah. No, Mendes no, no, no. made the, uh, American Beauty. American and, Beauty, right. Um, yeah. So it's a great collection of talented people. That's cool. So um, we'll see. Um, but my involvement now is um, kind of cheerleader. I also, this is the first one. Usually they option it, which means they rent it for a while while they try to put pieces mm. together. This is the first one that they just outright bought. So, nice. um, so um, yeah, Steve Spears. 
Spielberg, I call him Steve. Yeah. <laughs> he calls me never. Um, uh, so Steve owns it now. So. <laughs> it's his well, problem. Well, and you but, mentioned mm. movies uh, beforehand. You mentioned that in order to promote this in the world of COVID, your new novel, that you and Raja Bose yeah. made a six-minute film. It's brilliant. Raj what, is so a genius. What, I mean, what is it? Well, first of all, are we going to be able to see it? Is this something you're going to release concurrently yeah, with the book? I will. I'll put it online, and then um, I think... I, I made it for two reasons. You know, so much of that history still lives. I wanted to show people. And um, a big a big inspiration for me in this novel were these old 100-year-old postcards I collect mm. of Spokane. I've got a couple dozen of them. And so Raj and I would go and we would, he would film the postcard and then he would film that straight, same street oh, scene cool. now oh, and cool. fade them in. It's really cool. And nice. so I... Th- I I, I made a one-minute version to release on social media of this, or Raj did, I did. Uh, I did nothing, Raj. Uh, but, uh, and I've worked with Raj before, Raja Bose, and he's just a brilliant filmmaker, and yeah. I kind of want to make one of my short stories or something in a short film with him. But, yeah, we, we put together this really cool video that kind of talks about how the novel came about, um, about those historical things, the 1909 labor riots, um, about the characters in the novel, um, and then about how it intersects with the moment we're in and then but it's really about Spokane I really wanted to since I can't go out on book tour I wanted to bring readers to Spokane mm. and so if they watch that they'll <laughs> they'll see this violent river crashing through this city falls at the center of downtown this 1909 this you know turn of the century architecture just come alive I think oh, cool. yeah. so one of the best descriptions um, one summarizes you know I'm I Got to know you, mm-hmm. you know, from Eva going to LCI. I'm going to read some of Jess's books. So I read three books uh, on a week vacation and found myself laughing a lot. And then I read somebody, I th- one of your colleagues says, your voice is like stand-up tragedy. Yeah, Jim Lynch <laughs> said that. Yeah. And I thought that was such a great description because yeah. um, there's a humorous antidote yeah. to the tragedy yeah. and I'm and thinking about this your ne- next novel Cold Millions yeah. Hobos you know Irish you know I, so I was born in, in Montana so and in so Montana? I know all of the yeah. butte Irish people oh. and all, my dad was a you, railroader you guys want a pasty after this? yes <laughs> no we're going to go to John's pork chops here <laughs> have a pork chop yeah, yeah nice uh, anyway so I'm, I'm curious to know if that, a lot of that's going to be yeah. in your character development with this next novel uh, when, yeah, uh, another novelist friend of mine Jim Lynch coined yeah. stand up tragedy but it is I and I love that because I do I, I do and again I don't it's nothing intentional I don't sit down trying to do something I think um, a novel is like a polygraph in some way you know it's going to tell the truth about who you are and that's sort of how I see the world with a wistful sense of humor um, and a kind of heartbreak and um, and the humor and the heartbreak aren't are never too far apart from each right. other yeah. and so you you imbue your characters with some of that um, and both uh, Gig and Rye uh, and then some of the side characters one of the things I loved when, Eric you asked, you talked about writing challenges with this I thought I don't just want depth of character I love that in a novel but I want breadth and so I brought all these other characters voices in so you so the main narrative is in a third person but then there are these first person voices whose stories just sort of mm. spike in and I thought of them as river undercurrents oh. and so in the novel they have this little undercurrent um, uh, um, 
imagery in the beginning. There's like these little falls in each one of these little first person chapters and writing those and getting to, you know, um, writing a hardened um, Pinkerton detective who comes to Spokane and (laughs) hates his big hatred of more than anything is boosters. And the thing you have to know about Spokane in 1909 is it had the largest theater in the world, the largest theater stage in the world. It had the largest beer hall. It had um, the, 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 the clock tower that the, um, uh, that the train station was, you know, the greatest, uh, the largest um, clock tower of its kind. And so anyway, as, as he comes into Spokane, he's just beset by boosters. And, um, and the third person who tells him how big this stage is gets punched in the throat. <laughs> and, um, and I just loved, you know, I loved that uh, aspect of, uh, of this, you know, of this character uh, taking a whack at a booster. And so, yeah, that I, I, I really like writing characters who, who have that combination of that wistful humor. And you just keep talking about Spokane with such uh, affection. And, I mean, we've had some big writers who leave Spokane. And it seems like you just keep doubling down and doubling down (laughs) on Spokane, which is great. I mean, I I love it. How much has there been a lure to go other places? Oh, certainly. And uh, what's made you stay here? (sighs) It's interesting. I, I... I wrote an, an essay a little bit about this statistical abstract of my hometown, Which is, Spokane, Washington. I, I, anybody so. who ever doesn't know anything about Spokane, I say, yeah. here and, you go. It's you know, all you need to know. And, it's, it's, and I've never noticed all the BMX bicycle since, riders. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. And everybody I see, will talk oh my about gosh. that. No. It's just like, how did I miss that? I okay. get photos from all over the world. <laughs> people send me pictures of, of grown men riding children's BMX bikes. Although we may have traded them in for Lime scooters. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but but the point of that essay was, as a young writer, I thought I can't succeed here. I have to go somewhere else to succeed, and um, and and also just that kind of healthy hatred of your hometown. I mean, if I meet a 19-year-old, they should think their hometown sucks. But if they're from Paris, they should also think, <laughs> i got to get the hell out of this shithole. Sorry. Um, I am, you might have to be- beep that later. Oh, I, no. I am not going to succeed if I'm stuck here in crappy Paris, you know. So, so I think it's partly healthy. But part of it, I realized, was a sort of snobbery. Like, the things I didn't like about Spokane were the things I didn't like about myself. It's, you know, too white, too working class, too unsophisticated. You know, I could have been describing my own bio you know (laughs) and so um you know that and there's a line in there that at some point you either um make the place that you live better or you find a new place to live and that you know that decision is partly why i helped start spark central when it was inc it's partly why i try to promote other writers here and watching the city blow up the way it has artistically it's i can't even keep up i used to feel like if i don't go to things they won't happen (laughs) now i just hide in my office and you know the world you know it's so thrilling to watch how the arts in spokane have exploded and um you know the the support that that you guys give that everyone gives it's like it it's really been amazing to see so um but yeah i um uh i I I think I feel about Spokane probably the way a lot of residents do. When someone um, 
knocks it, I will defend it to the death. And when someone praises it, I will beat it back down. So <laughs> it's almost like your family. You, you, you can criticize it, but um, from Seattle, I'm sorry. That's a crappy harbor town. You know, it's so over. Uh, Portland, whatever. You know, if you think it's so great, but um, it's nice to have weather also. Now, I've, <laughs> I've, I've heard that, um, and it kind of feels that way, although I've never grown up in Portland. My oldest son lives there, but um, it's sort of like a young, maybe a very young Portland in that, yeah. um, you know, we, we've, we've kind of built some things and more people are, are coming. Yeah. I'm talking about creative people yeah. in certain ways. Yeah, I think growing up in the shadow of Seattle, you think, oh, we got to be Seattle. we got to be Seattle. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get Microsoft. We're not going to get Amazon. Um, and, you know, that uh, my son has in his dorm room a Spokane doesn't suck sign. Yeah, and oh, it's you. very much like keep Portland weird. You know, yeah. it's mm-hmm. it's claiming that thing that um, that defines you and the Spokane stand T-shirts. And, you know, I mean, I um, again, the, we shouldn't r- hide from the fact that we're a little less economically successful. We live in a city where a teacher can still afford a house. You know how rare that is? Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't have to live 40 minutes out of, outside of town. That's a, that is a, a, an undeniably morally good thing, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and it also makes for a place where artists go, you know, if you can't afford the artist lofts in a city, if it's all stockbrokers living in your artist lofts, right. you're, you're on your way to being a much less livable place. Now, being a raconteur, as you clearly are. Clearly. Uh, um, <laughs> I have never opened a restaurant in my life. I have no idea what you're talking yeah. about. Uh, you, you had a podcast. I did. Everybody's, I everybody st- has yeah. a podcast I now. I started yeah. the whole podcast thing. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Of course yeah. you did. 1974, <laughs> the Expo podcast. On 8-track. Yeah, on 8-track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, with the plunger. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, did you enjoy that? What Remind us of what it was and yeah. why do you not do it anymore? Sherman Alexi and I had a podcast podcast called A Tiny Sense of Accomplishment. Um, here's the hilarious thing. We got asked to do a podcast and neither of us had really listened to one. <laughs> and the first time I listened to it, I thought, oh, so it's just bad radio. <laughs> um, I can do that. Um, and it was great fun to do. It's, um, you know, I, I, I so admire, you know, you guys doing it because it tests the friendship. I mean, mm-hmm. you both have to show up, you know, yeah. it's, um, you know, one person might want to do one thing and the other another. And, um, and it was really fun to do i i realized i prefer being on podcasts than setting up the interviews and the production the part, production right? part yeah. i'm i'm not a detail guy it's the reason i don't have a pilot's license is um you know i'm not gonna <laughs> it's chi- also the reason you're not in the nba yes probably. <laughs> that, that is not the reason <laughs> I'm a five foot nine inch one eyed guy. Oh come on! So there, there are none of us in the NBA. So the, um, but I, yeah, I, uh, you know, the, I don't know how many times I had to retape things, and, um, but, I, but I really enjoyed it, and I love the culture of it. Um, and I, I didn't start really listening to podcasts until mine was done. Uh, and I still, I don't commute anywhere. I can't listen to podcasts when I write. Um, so it's not something I do very often. I don't ever listen to my own interviews because I don't want to become self-critical, you know. Mm-hmm. I want to just think, oh, I nailed that and not <laughs> you know, hear all the ums or, um, you know, how uh, children run screaming from my voice or something. <laughs> I'm over so. that by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what are the things that you listen to and read and what are the, what are the cultural <laughs> things that you kind of can't live without? 
Oh boy. Or that you've been loving lately. Yeah, I mean I I take a bunch of magazines, so I take the Atlantic Monthly and the New Yorker and the New York Review of Books and Harper's and they pile up on my bedstand and I read a half a page and And they taunt you all they year. They taunt me. Um but I keep them and uh um so I can't really live without those. I um I'm a less voracious reader than I used to be. Um novels I still but I still read twenty, thirty novels a year probably um books of short stories i mean i try to keep up with what's going on i judged a few contests where i judged the national book award one year where i had to read 230 novels 230 books of fiction and it kind of broke me for that Mm -hmm. sort of reading you get asked to write blurbs all the time and um so so i'm probably pickier with novels um but i love reading you know, great old classics. I read War and Peace as I was writing this novel and reread it and just was so thrilling. And um, um, listening wise, uh, I mean, um, Apple Music pretty much tells me what I want to hear. So I trust it to trust the algorithm. Yeah, yeah I trust the algorithm. <laughs> yeah. And it's weird. It's like, I did want to hear that Steely Dan song. How did you know Apple Music? Um, and then other times I'm like, what? I'd break with thee. I'm going back to Spotify. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I have listened to a couple more podcasts, um, but but it, that's still a harder thing for me because, like I said, I don't commute anywhere. The, my office is right there across the backyard, um, and so there just aren't that many times for me. Uh, and when I go for a walk, I almost prefer listening to music. But I've listened to um, All the Smoke, this NBA podcast that is um, two old NBA guys talking the way they really talk about other players and stuff. And that's kind of thrilling. I like the New Yorker podcast. The New York Times podcasts are great. Um, but again, I probably listen to one a month. Um, it's, you know, it's just something I don't, I don't, it's just not really fit, it fits into my life right now. It doesn't fit in my life, but hopefully, I mean, I, every time I listen, I think I need to do that more often, but again, the commute is so short. Yeah. Yeah. You have such a love for basketball, almost a reverence for it. It seems like I do. Um, what, what is it about basketball? Is there any crossover between the, the philosophical aspect of basketball and your personality and maybe would it go into a future story of some sort i mean i've written a whole i've written a whole series of basketball short stories about a rec league men's rec league team called the foaming 40s um (laughs) published about half of them i published one in espn the magazine one in grantland here and there Um, yeah r.i.p it was great great, i'm in grantland number one oh wow yeah yeah (laughs) leather bound looks like a basketball it's really cool but um so yeah i have written about basketball i almost think it's the opposite though i think it's the opposite of writing it's instant it's active it's um it's reactive writing is so contemplative and i think it's great to it's the way i get out of my own head it's also um a communal thing i do with the men in my life my brother my good friend kevin blocker we you know, we have played basketball together. Ralph and I have played basketball together for 50, 45 years, you know, and um, and we still get together and play and we talk afterward and, you know, and um, 
you guys wouldn't know, but male aging can be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great. Oh, right. You're very kind. <laughs> and it's great to, uh, to be able to share that, you know, because yeah. you're losing a step. You're, you know, aging for anyone is about loss. It's about letting go of things that you held dear. And, um, and in basketball, you let go of your speed and you let go of your jumping ability. And then eventually you let go of your <laughs> jump shot and then you let go of the game. And to have to be on the path with other you know with your friends and your brother doing that is really special yeah but i'm not letting go of it now my jumper yeah. is butter yeah. i mean i they won't even let me on the courts in town because i ripped the nets out they have to replace <laughs> the nets yeah i'm there five the minutes yeah. i'm there five minutes and they have to bring in a crew to replace the nets because they are tearing yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great I don't know. There, there is something about sport, though, yeah. and creativity and process yeah. and, and, and getting better. Community yeah. and court sense, you know. And yeah. I think the thing about court sense and what I uh, notice about you as well as other great writers is there is a different kind of antenna on uh, observation and knowing what move is going to be made or yeah. the anticipation or there's – you either have court sense or you don't. Well, you know, I, I coached my son's <laughs> baseball team, and I very much felt those. I felt like a writer doing that. Mm. Like I said, when I play basketball, the, you know, it's funny. <laughs> you, you hear interviews with great players, and it's not like a great philosophical moment. No. It's pretty much, um, you know, we're taking it one game at a time. <laughs> and, you know, and um, I, I, do think there are, I do think there are places where it connects. But... Um, Again, just being out of my own mind and in my body, you know, as as old and failing as it is, the and you talk about my court sense, the you know having no vision on my left side. My brother likes to tell the story of we were playing in this <laughs> this rec league team, and and I would look on the fast break, and everybody's running on my right side, like no one would ever fill the <laughs> the lane on the left side because they didn't think I could see them to get them the ball, you know. So they would, as the point guard, you're always dishing right. right you know, so, yeah. Well, story. we are uh, basically out of time. Oh, man, uh-huh. you're kidding. So no, no. It's, uh, it's wow. been about 55 minutes, Jeez, I think. I yeah. Another... There's only ice in here. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time to refill. Is, yeah. uh, so you're going to be doing a bunch of book stuff. And I'd be interested to talk to you afterwards to see how that yeah, all went. That'd be great. Maybe yeah. after the book's out for a month or two and, yeah. and see what you think and what the reception's been like. And Yeah. I mean, the, so far the reviews have been really nice. Yeah. I mean, some great reviews. Sean Vestal said he read it and said it was amazing. So, well, he has yeah. no literary sense whatsoever. So. <laughs> I noticed that. Yeah. yeah. No, that's really kind. Yeah. Good, good, terrific writer. No, I mean, so. the superlative some, at some yeah. point got to make you blush a little bit. It's like, wow, it's, that's a really nice thing to say. It's so nice, yeah, and um, and I and I, I'm just always, you know, still sort of surprised people read the stuff. Yeah. But no, it's been it's been really great, and and I think people are recognizing that one of the most rewarding things is just to have people recognize the thing you wrote to you know to mm-hmm. say this echoes the times here and you know it's rollicking in this way and you know to have your intention um, rewarded with reading is yeah it's a thrill. Yeah. Well, I hope you have a good time on your tour. I hope you sell lots and lots of books. And let's do it again. Yeah. (laughs) Drinks are on me again. All right. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Thanks, Jess. Jess.